0: right we're after that virtuoso performance with the worship we can be glad that the bible says that he rejoices in our praises and that he's not necessarily into it musically and critically as robert would have said you know once it goes through the heavenly filter it sounds okay and of course the fact that we have to listen to it down here is part of our sacrifice of praise isn't it right okay back back to james and of course, just reminding you again that i'm I'm back to the r s v for this um now then we've we've basically done chapter one and done all our introductions and set the scene um although we are just going to say a bit about the last verse um of chapter one again, but then tonight where I think we'll be able to take a mad dash and and do the whole of of chapter two and um perhaps two of the main things that we we saw last time as James was kind of giving the intro um, was that, that wisdom consists of two things it consists of receiving the Word of God but that's not enough it then consists of doing the Word and so he talks about receiving the implanted Word that goes into us rather like a seed but it's only as we put it into practice it's only as we do it that the power of the Word of God then actually changes us, because it's the food that makes our new nature grow and overrides the sinful one. And so we saw those two things have to go together. Hearing the Word and receiving it, reading it, obviously growing in the knowledge of the truth, but it's only as we actually put it into practice that it's going to do us any good at all. So it's hearing and it's doing. what it really boiled down to, we saw um, in, in verse 26 and 27, really the whole thing that James is getting at, you know, the nitty-gritty, all right, he's saying you're saved, brilliant, so act saved, and this is what it means. And uh, he, he boiled down true discipleship, you remember. He said, if anyone thinks that he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this man's religion is vain. See, anyone can talk, yak, yak, yak. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see there that discipleship boils down really to two things. First, it boils down to self-sacrificial good works towards those who are in need. And of course, it's sacrificial because if you're to help someone in need, you're making up their deficit out of your surplus. So, therefore, it means that when that is the way forward, in any one, no, time, we kiss our surplus goodbye. That is self-sacrificial. Doesn't mean all the time, but there are times when that is what it's going to need. It means someone is in need, we meet that need. So you've got good works, right, towards those who are in need. But then the second part is sanctification. And that he defines as keeping oneself unstained from the world. Now, what we've just got to clear up now is what does that second one mean? I mean, it's very clear meeting needs and serving people. But keeping oneself unstained from the world, I mean, that's holiness. But what exactly does James mean here by the world? When the Bible warns us against the world, what does it actually mean? Now, if if you just go over to chapter 4 and verse 4, and we'll be seeing this in much greater detail in a later talk, but he says, Unfaithful creatures, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So there's another warning against the world. And if you go over to 1 John, find the first letter of John, and uh, in chapter 1, and... um, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 15 to 17, he says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever." Now, here we're seeing strong warnings against the world, or against worldliness. Um, the language of Paul is that of carnality, all right? So, carnal Christians, worldly Christians, the same thing, all right? But we've got to ask here, what does James mean by love not the world? Now, the actual word here in the Greek for world is cosmos. That's the Greek word he uses. It means order, arrangement. Uh, it means ornamental, something arranged in such a way as it looks really nice, or adornment, in the sense that you'll adorn yourselves with clothes in order to look nice. Well, some of us do, at any anyway, rate. Okay. So, therefore, the Greeks applied that word to that word to the universe. All right, or the universe or the world in it, um, you know, sort of like we get the words cosmology which means the nature of the universe you get cosmogony which is how the everything started and so the actual word here cosmos in the Greek simply means the universe or the world in the widest sense, okay so in order to find out what James means it, we've got to see the three different ways in which the New Testament uses this word cosmos or world, okay? Now if you go to John chapter 21, we'll see the first way in which the New Testament uses this word cosmos or world. And if you find John and chapter 21, and it's quite simply here, we're going to see the word used simply of the world as in planet Earth the planet on which we live and in John 21 and verse 25 John and this is the last verse of his gospel he says but there are also many other things which Jesus did were every one of them to be written I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written so there the word is simply used there of planet earth like this is the world on which we live as opposed to Mars Because, of course, the Martians live there. Mm -hmm. Well, Asimov says they do, so I believe it. No, so there's the first meaning of the word world, simply the planet Earth, alright? And, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's nothing wrong with the material aspect of life. So, when James and John give all these warnings, you know, remain unstained from the world and worldliness, it's not saying that there's anything wrong with the actual planet on which we live. Nothing wrong with material. Uh, I mean, remember that when God created the world, at every stage of creation, He said, and it was good. And then He created man and woman, and then it was very good. So, the world is good. There's nothing wrong with the world, as in the planet. There's nothing wrong with material life. And, of course, we can know that simply from the fact that the Lord keeps it for the eternal state. I mean, once God's plan is totally fulfilled, sin is dealt with completely, unbelievers in the lake of fire, the universe as we know it now destroyed and replaced, the Lord creates a new planet Earth on which he lives with us. And if you just go to 2 Peter chapter 3, to, to see that clearly, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, when the verses prior to this are talking about how the universe is going to be dissolved with fire one day, he says, but according to his promise, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth, planet earth, the world, in which righteousness dwells. So, there's the first use of the word cosmos, warnings against the world, it's planet earth, nothing wrong with that at all, that is not what James is meaning here, alright, so when he warns us against the world, He's not warning us against the planet on which we live in any way at all. He's not warning us against material life. So then, what's the second way in which this word cosmos is used in the Bible? The world. And if you go to John 3 and verse 16, can you guess which verse this is? John chapter 3, verse 16, where we have this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him." So here, we have the word used of mankind, the world of men and women, the world that Jesus came to save, the world that Jesus died for, the human race. Now then, here, We're told that God loves that world. And of course, so are we to love that world. We are to be the world's friend in that sense. We are here to serve the people of the world, to love them, just like Jesus does. So that's not the world we must keep ourselves unstained from either. Here, James isn't saying keep yourself unstained from mankind. Because to do that, you'd have to withdraw from mankind. And that's daft. Do you remember Jesus prayed, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world. That's the world of mankind. A Christian isn't someone who withdraws from the world of mankind. A Christian is someone who is part of mankind, loves mankind, and gets stuck into it. So that's the second usage of the word, and uh, that's not what we're supposed to keep ourselves unstained from. The world, in that sense, of mankind, God loves mankind, and so are we too. Now, the third usage of this word, and it's what James is meaning, is the Bible uses the word cosmos to describe the present state of the human race in alienation from God and opposed to Him. You see, that it's the world system. It's the state in which man lives and exists as a fallen being. So, in effect, what the world boils down to, in this third sense, is the outlook, the attitudes, the behaviour, and the dispositions of the fallen human nature. That is the worldliness that we're to keep ourselves unstained from. If you go to Galatians, chapter 6, and let's define this and see it fairly clearly. Galatians chapter 6, and uh, in verse 14, Galatians 6, and in verse 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And of course, we're dead to sin and to self. That's the point. It's the world of fallen mankind, if you like, the sinful nature. And if you go back to to 1 John, John's first epistle, 1 John, and if you find chapter 5, and in verse 19, He says, ''We know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one.'' And there, it's using this word, ''cosmos'', in the sense of worldliness, in the sense of the condition of human affairs in opposition to God. So, in a sense, worldliness is going along with the sinful nature. It's sharing the outlook of people in the world who aren't following the Lord. That's the point. That is the world that we're to keep ourselves unstained from. The world of sin. The world, the outlook, the beliefs, the behaviour of those who are still under the power of Satan. So, therefore, we can define worldliness in the language of James and John or carnality Paul talks about Christians being carnal or the carnal nature we can define it as thinking and acting in accordance with the sinful nature as opposed to thinking and acting in accordance with the new nature that we received in Jesus. That is what worldliness is. Think of it like this when you do what you'd have done before you got saved. That is worldliness. Certain situations, you know how you reacted, responded, before you got saved. That was worldliness. But now, a new nature is inside, wanting to respond in a different way. And, of course, we have the choice. Are we going to go with the old or with the new? So, therefore, in its most blatant form, getting drunk is worldly. Of course it is, it's sin. Being immoral is worldly. Of course it is. One could truly say that one could dress in a worldly way, although sadly many Christians seems to think that that to dress in a modern way equals being worldly, but of course if you dress in an old-fashioned way that's okay. It's not that clear-cut, you know, but for instance, girls can dress in a way that is designed to make blokes fall into sin when they look upon them. That is worldliness. But of course, sadly, what you find in so many Christians is that if you talk to them about, you know, what is worldliness, that's the only kind of stuff they come up with. Oh, well, worldliness, it's getting drunk, it's going to pubs, blah, blah, blah. You know, some people say going to the pictures is worldly. Well, I can't quite see that. I suppose it depends what you're going to see. Mm. But what we're going to see is that as James in chapter 2 now embarks upon showing them what they're not supposed to be, we can see that worldliness is actually far wider than simply things like getting drunk or, you know, sort of like, you know, being immoral, blah, blah, blah. But worldliness, in actual fact, is very subtle and very wide-ranging. And uh, so as as James goes on now, you know, to, to say, right, now you must remain unstained from the world, and this is how you do it, some aspects of worldliness may actually uh, surprise you. So, having said that, let's actually now dive in, and and in chapter 2. And uh, I think we're going to be able to do a whole lot tonight, but we'll just, um, you know, sort of go through it bit by bit. Now then, we'll start with verse 1. He says, My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. If you're a Christian, you're not going to be partial. Um, Just go over to chapter 2, sorry, go go further down into verse 9. He says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. So he goes back to it there. So what is this partiality that we're not to show? It's worldly if you show partiality. Now, the Greek word here is prosupolimpsia. Lovely word, isn't it? Prosu—I <laughs> can't say it. Prosupolimpsia. I give away now. I don't actually speak Greek. And what it means is to base your judgment of somebody upon rank, or position, or popularity. I.e., it means to base your judgment on somebody on their external circumstances and therefore preferring the rich and the powerful, for instance, rather than the ordinary Joe in the street. So that is what partiality is. Basing your judgment of people on external circumstances and uh, preferring those who, in the world's terms, would be considered to be the in people, Um, i.e. preferential treatment. That's what it is, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of a particular type of person, you think oh yeah, you know, someone like that, they're my type of person in the sense of oh, they've got lots of money, or oh, they've got a really important job, or oh, they've got they've got a BMW, or I have to make sure I get a lift with them, it's, it's that kind of thing, and uh, you know, sort of, and of course, if Jesus had been like that, if that was the attitude of Jesus, that he only wanted to spend time with the top dogs, I mean, What chance would the likes of you and me have? You know, know, if if, if Jesus was partial in this regard, I certainly wouldn't be saved, and neither would you. Because it it would mean that he was kind of snooty. And, uh, you know, that's crazy. He is not like that, therefore we aren't to be. In effect, what we're talking about here is prejudice. That's what we're talking about. Um, it, It could even be racism. You know, I mean the evil of racism in our hearts, you know. I mean it's like, you know, I mean here we are a room full of white Caucasians. All right? Now you could go into a situation and there's some white Caucasians and there's some blacks, Afro-Caribbean, Asian, you name it. And you might think, Oh no, I only want to be with my fellow whites. You see, that is partiality, that's racism. That is evil, it's prejudice. And what James is saying, there should be no prejudice in our hearts. in that way at all. Now let's, let's read on as he opens this out and look at the example he gives, and you'll see why I've been going on about money. For if a man with gold rings and in fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. This poor man's probably dressed something like Lee is at the moment. And, and, and you pay attention... You, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing uh, that's carried the analogy further, that would of course be me, and, and say, have a seat here please, while you say to the poor man, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So, what James does, in order to illustrate this, he homes in on the rich and the poor. And uh, what he's saying is, look, you should treat both quite equally. So, you know, here they are, you know, they're, they're gathering together, maybe it's their love feast or they're having their worship service or their Bible study or something like that, and some new people come in. Uh, you know, one of these new people is kind of dripping with gold. Clearly rich, clearly wealthy, clearly, in the world's eyes, impressive. And another bloke comes in, you know, sort of like, you know, and you tell he he does most of his buying at the charity shops. And of course what happens is the rich man is now ushered to the best seat. All the attention is given to him. While the poor man stand there or sit there. So the rich man, he gets the seat. The poor man gets the choice of having to stand up for the whole meeting or sitting on the floor. You see what I mean? So it's a partiality. It's kind of a, you know, sort of, um, it's not treating them equally. And what James is saying, look. External circumstances are nothing to do whatsoever with how people are treated. You should treat people equally. If you go to 1 Peter, and if you find chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, and if you invoke as Father him who judges each one impartially according to his deeds. Now there you have the fact that our Father, God, is completely impartial. God is no respecter of persons. He looks on the heart. He doesn't look on external circumstances. And therefore we've got to make sure that we don't fall into that trap as well. And sort of think, oh well here's someone who's impressive in a certain way. Let's, let's kind of treat them with a, some greater respect or something than, than, than someone else over here who's a real mister, you know, average as it were. Uh, just go to Matthew in this regard and uh, Matthew chapter 7 and the good old Sermon on the Mount and um, warning people of false prophets, Jesus said you will know them by their fruits you shall know them by their fruits and of course the basis of our judgement on people's lives, including each other's in fellowship is not money or position or a high profile or anything like that at all. And James says here that if you start giving preferential treatment to the people who are rich powerful or whatever just because they're rich or powerful, he says you have become judges with evil thoughts. And of course the point is that the moment that you give someone preferential treatment Based on their external circumstances, the moment you're doing that, you are judging with evil thoughts. You are then judging with evil, uh, you know, kind of intent. I mean, for instance, uh, you know, and this this you know could apply to you know people who are elders, but it could apply across the board. That you know, sort of maybe you've got a particular situation where two people do something that just needs a correction, but the rich person might not be corrected. After all, maybe you could think, well, they're probably very generous givers to the church, we don't want to upset them. Can you see what I mean? Whereas an ordinary Joe would be corrected quite properly, without further thought. But can you see the principle here? Of, you know, treating the rich or whatever, or the powerful people, the in people, giving them a preferential treatment that's different to, to just people who are what, what you call the average joe in the street we must watch that, it's dangerous and it's completely wrong we are all equal in the sight of God quite regardless of our external circumstances let's, let's keep going and, and here James really does get ironic now he says listen my beloved brethren and he's still on this thing about partiality has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonoured the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the honourable name by which you are called? Now, James is really going below the belt here. And what he's getting at is this. You see, the point is, basically, in any church, yeah. You know, unless you add, OK, yeah, you might have fellowships in exceedingly rich areas of various countries, where, you know, sort of like there isn't a millionaire for a hundred mi- you know, miles, so, so a church like that is going to, everyone, is going to be very rich. But you see, the average church, and especially at this time, and the average church that James is writing to here, the thing is, the average person in that church was poor, not rich. And you've got the situation where you've got all these poor people sucking up to the Christians who are rich. And James wants to draw their attention to two things. Because can you see the rather the pathetic picture there? Poor Christians sucking up to rich Christians just because they're rich. Now, James, in these verses, he lays two things on them. He says, look, first of all, remember that the poor are in the majority in the kingdom of God, just as the poor are in the majority in the world. And remember, and he dealt with this in chapter 1, didn't he, that it's the poor who are especially exalted due to their humble circumstances. Because the less you've got, the more you've got to rely on the Lord. So, firstly, It's the poor who are especially blessed of God, not the rich. So he says, why are you sucking up to the rich then? You poor people who are sucking up to the rich, you're the ones who are blessed. Not them, they should be sucking up to you. You see, everything is upside down, or rather the right way up again in the kingdom of God. But then secondly, James reminds them, he says, look, many of the problems that you're going through is precisely because of the sin of the rich and the powerful in your society. He's saying in effect, look, he says the rich are bashing you, they're oppressing you, I mean you're poor, you're getting bashed enough and exploited enough from the rich, don't for heaven's sake turn on each other and start fighting amongst yourselves and getting out of fellowship with each other for the sake of kowtowing to them. Can you see the irony of what he's saying? He says, look, you're all kowtowing to the rich. He says, but can't you see? It's the rich that cause many of the social problems that you're experiencing because the rich tend, not always, but the rich tend to exploit people. So he's saying, look, can you not see the absurdity, the absolute absurdity of the idea of poor people sucking up to the rich and giving them preferential treatment. It's to completely fail to understand the relationship between the rich and the poor that there ought to be in the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, sort of like, here they've forgotten. And so he's saying, look, stop doing it. It's absolutely ridiculous. These are the very people causing many of the ills in the society in which you live. Don't go kowtowing to them. And, of course, remember that we saw last time, in regards to the rich, we saw that the poor are exalted, but the rich are humiliated. Because the point is that, that, that when they die, I mean, you know, it's, you know, everything goes back into the box, doesn't it? All your hotels on Mayfair, all that money you've got, it all goes back into the box. And so the rich person dies, takes nothing with him and realises that of himself he had nothing. But you see, the poor people knew that already. So there's no humility. Poor people can only be exalted, but rich people can only be humbled. And that's the relationship between the haves and the have-nots in the kingdom of God. Now, let's just, at that moment, pause there and just look a bit more at what the Bible says in regards to the haves and the have-nots, because it's important. We're considering here the question of being rich. And what James is addressing here is the evil of giving partial treatment to people. So you've got poor Christians here kowtowing to rich people just because they're rich. And James is saying it's wrong. But notice he's not saying that it's wrong to be rich. He's saying it is wrong to kowtow to people just because they're rich now in chapter 5 in later studies we're going to see James give the rich Christians a kicking such as would delight any Marxist alright they really are going to get a kicking in chapter 5 and we'll get there soon but in chapter 4 which is before we get there we're going to see them all getting a kicking rich and poor you see (laughs) and we've got to underline this in their hearts Nowhere in the Bible does it say that money, or being rich, is a sin. There are great dangers with money. The love of money is sin. But riches themselves are completely neutral. There is nothing wrong with being rich. And in the Old Testament, it's quite clear that God actually chose to make some people rich. And there is not one word in the New Testament to suggest that God has changed in any way at all. If God wants to make people rich, including Christians, he is quite free to do that. Now then, if you go to one Timothy, let's let's just see some verses which are definitive and, and we'll clear this up, you know, like the haves and the have nots, all right. Find one Timothy chapter six. One Timothy chapter six and start with verse six. <coughs> And he says, There is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. This all goes back into the box, doesn't it? But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils." I.e., there is no evil you will not do if you love money. Because there's nothing you won't do to get the money, if you see what I mean. "...it is through this craving that some has w- have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs." Now, the warning there is to the have-nots. And the Bible says to the have-nots, don't, don't, don't crave to have. Don't crave to have. If you crave to have more than you've got, and if you forget contentment, then you're going to fall into the love of money, and what it can do for you. So then, to the have-nots, the warning is, don't be, don't be envious and covetous of those who've got more than you. If God wants to give you much more and make you rich, He will. It's down to him, but he might not. Don't envy the rich, don't be envious of what they've got. Now go to verse 17. And now we have God's instructions to the rich, Christian. As for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. So, God's word to the rich is, be careful of pride. Don't get haughty. You're nothing special just because you're rich and don't you dare think you are. Don't expect people with less than you to kowtow to you, because they're not going to, and it's wrong that you want to. That's the danger of the rich. And also, the danger of the rich is that they can put their trust in their riches rather than in God himself. And But what they are told to do is to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous. So, are rich Christians told to give away everything they've got? No, they're not. They're told to be generous. And of course, the more you've got, the more you ought to give. That's fair enough. But that kind of sums up the thing about the rich and poor there. The have-nots mustn't be envious or jealous, and if God wants to give you more, He will. But those who have got lots and lots, they've got to be aware of the dangers of pride and stuff like that. So, therefore, that kind of sorts that up. Now, then we, we move on now to verse 8. Let's go at a right old pace here, I can see, or we're going to run out of time. Verse 8, he says if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you do well. And then he goes on, he gives his final thrust in verse 9 about partiality, but there's something amazing there, absolutely amazing. Now obviously we're seeing here again that James has now got free of his legalism, he's not into the old covenant anymore is he? He's not talking about, you know, sort of like the law, of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses. He's talking here about the, the, the royal law, the new covenant. So James is free of all his legalism and stuff like that now, isn't he? But uh, he defines this royal law, the new covenant, alright, the new covenant, he defines it as, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. He says this is what it is all about, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now, we've got to ask a question here, and it's this. Why, if he wants to define what the New Covenant actually is, what the Christian life is, shouldn't he not say that it's all summed up with, you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbours yourself? But he doesn't do that. He misses God out completely. You know, I mean, a socialist could read this and say, oh, yes, this is very good. Yeah, just knock God out of it, and Christianity is quite good. It's socialism. Which, I suppose, if you knocked God out enough, I mean, you might be able to squeeze socialism out of some of the verses of the Bible. But can you see something odd here? Defining the new covenant, not in terms of loving God and then love your neighbour, but purely loving your neighbour. Why is God left out? If you go to Galatians... Galatians chapter 5, and I just want to show you, because, I mean, you know, perhaps, perhaps this was just a, a, a foible of James. Perhaps we could almost call it a bad habit that James had, you know, missing bits of verses out, as it were. But, if you find Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, and this is Paul writing, he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Well, Paul does it as well. A succinct definition of the Christian life, of being in the New Covenant, is you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. Paul says, no it's not. James says, no it's not. It's simply, love your neighbour as yourself. And we've got to ask why. Why did James leave God out of this? And the answer is that these guys were realists. They weren't, unlike many Christians today, super-spiritual. They were nitty-gritty. I.e., they were heavenly-minded, because we're commanded to be, but they weren't so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. And, of course, the thing is, they knew, they knew that the question, do you love God, is a bit of an irrelevant question. In the sense that If you want to address yourself with that question, Do I love God? Then what is the way in which we're able to answer that question? And of course, the way that the Bible tells us that we can answer that question is simply this. You find out if you love the Lord your God by whether or not you're loving your neighbour as yourself. You see? Because of course, to love God is to obey his commandments. What do his commandments boil down to? His commandments boil down to loving your neighbour as yourself. So, if you want to find out if you love God, do you love your neighbour as yourself? And that is why they left God out of it. Not because they were leaving God out of it, but because they didn't want to give anyone that escape of saying, oh yes, I love God. Because the question is, well, if you do, then that means you're loving your neighbour as yourself, yes? So, therefore, it was irrelevant to put God in there. Uh, Go back to John. Find 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. And here is the principle. No, I mean 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. When John says this If anyone says, I love God which is an easy thing to say, isn't it? And hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God should love his brother also. So, can you see that? That is why James says it all boils down to love your (coughs) neighbours yourself. Not love God, and love your neighbour as yourself. Because, of course, if you do love God, that means you are loving your neighbour as yourself. And, uh, you know, remember this whole thing about James. His burden is you're saved, then act saved. Don't just talk saved, but act saved. Then in verse 9, he just goes back for a final, you know, like stab about uh, the partiality. Right, so, so now let's move on to verse 10. He says, for whoever, well, 10, uh, 10 to 13. For whoever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't kill. If you don't commit adultery, but do kill, you've become a transgressor transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, yet mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, are you beginning to see that James writes a bit like a Sarajevo sniper? <laughs> you, you, you just don't know where he's gonna, you know, which direction he's going to shoot in next, all right? And he dives in now about the law, all right? And, uh, and basically, what he's getting at here is, is that he brings in the principle of the Old Testament law. He's not into it, but he brings in the, you know, that thing. And he says, look, under the law, it says you mustn't commit adultery. And he said, you might well not commit adultery, but you might murder. So as far as the law is concerned, you're completely guilty of the whole lot. Be guilty in one bit, and you're guilty of the whole lot. But then in, um, in, in, in verse 12, he says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So he's emphasising there that he's not saying we're under the old law, we're under the new covenant. Okay, But the basic thing that he's getting at here is... Self righteousness in the fact that what he's doing in this letter, he's that th- there's a hundred and eight commandments, all right. So, so he's he really is saying this wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and you're reading the letter and you're sort of ducking that one, and then a shot and you're ducking that one, all right. And it's the point he's listing out all these things that are wrong, and he's saying if the cat fits, where's it now? The point is that by definition. Because it would be very difficult to be guilty of everything that James writes against, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be quite a full life. I mean, you wouldn't have much time to sleep, would you? So, no Christian is actually guilty of all the sins that James is exposing here. So, therefore, by definition, each individual Christian, including us as they go through his letter... They're going to come up against things that say, oh, yeah, that's me, Lord, I've got to repent of that. And then re-say, oh, oh no, I'm, I'm not guilty of that, that's not me. Now, what is the danger? The danger is to end up glowing with self-satisfied pride and self-righteousness when you get to a bit that you're not guilty of. For instance, you might not be guilty of prejudice. You might not suck up to the rich so you could be sitting at night saying oh but of course this doesn't apply to me because i don't do that god's delivered me from that one and we can sit there glowing all right and so what he does he reminds them look to be guilty of a sin that he doesn't mention i'll start again <laughs> oh boy this is complicated No, know I'll, I'll try it another way he says look The fact that you're not guilty of something that I mention doesn't mean that you're not equally guilty of something that I don't mention. And what he's saying is that if you're guilty of anything, then that makes you as bad as anyone who's guilty of individual things that I'm saying. But he's saying that if you're sitting here, as I'm writing, glowing with pride that you're not guilty of this sin or that sin, He said, not only are you as bad as everyone else who's guilty of what I'm writing about, but you're compounding it and you're twice as bad because on top of that, you're a self-righteous git." That is what James is saying. So this is a thrust at self-righteousness. So that the fact that he might be dealing with aspects of the royal law of love that you're not guilty of, we mustn't sit there saying, oh, I'm doing quite well, aren't I? Because there are going to be other aspects that we are guilty of. And so he's saying, keep everything in perspective. Because after all, he's already covered the fact that we are all equal. And that means we are also equally sinful. So, that's that's the warning there, alright? Um, and of course he's saying that that if you're going to, go into the self-righteous mode then obviously then that is the time when God really does have to humble us so in effect what he's saying what I've written so far I'm saying this is wrong that's wrong you might be sitting there thinking oh well of course I don't do that he says but don't glow with pride because there's gonna be sin in your life elsewhere now that's no problem we're all sinners but if you're sitting there glowing with pride and self-righteousness then in effect you've got a bigger problem than the people who are guilty of what I've spoken of so far. That's why he puts those verses in, because he just wants to make, you see, he's, he's kind of, he's firing machine gun on as wide a spread as he possibly can. But this one is for anyone that any of his bullets so far hasn't hit. So this is the scatter gun. <laughs> you might escape his machine gun. But now he's got the Gatling gun out. Can you see what I mean? Or or, or he's he's dropping H-bombs now. Everyone is included in what he's saying. All of us have got to be allowing the word of God to judge us so that God can keep working in us. And self-righteousness is the surefire way to not grow in the Lord and to be a hypocrite. We mustn't be like that. Okay. Now then. Uh, for the rest of this chapter, we're, we're going to see him really, you know, sort of like going, going for worldliness by, by the throat now. So let's, let's, let's read um, verse 14. Uh, he's, he's kind of tightening his grip here. It's going to be a death blow to hypocritical Christians. In verse, uh, verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has not works? Can his faith save him? Now, he's raising a question, how do you spot faith in somebody? Well, it's not by their claim to have it. That's not how you spot faith, alright? So, you know, I mean, I could say, well, I'm full of faith, brothers, at the moment. That's not how you find out if I'm full of faith. You find out if I'm full of faith, if I've got faith, by looking at my works. What I do, how I live. And so he says here can his faith save him? Now we've got to to, to to kind of get round this because there are some Christians who seem to think that James writes things that contradict Paul who says we're saved by faith and we're gonna here see James now launch out saying, no, you're not saved by faith, you're saved by works, and we've got to... There's no contradiction here, but we've just got to understand it. Ask a question, can faith without works save us? James says it can't. We've got to say, can it? Well, do you get to heaven? If by being saved by faith you mean getting to heaven, obviously we get to heaven by having faith in Jesus. It's as simple as that. So, you get to heaven by having faith in Jesus. The formula, you get to heaven by faith in Jesus plus works, is salvation by works, that's wrong. You get to heaven by believing on Jesus. Alright. So then, we've got to raise the question, well, James now goes on to say the opposite, that you're saved by works. So, what is it? Is salvation by faith, or by faith plus works? Now, we've got to actually see the context here when paul says look if you've got work if you've got faith show me your works can your your faith save you all right without works now this this word save in the greek is sozo that's the word he uses here and when we use the you know the terminology hey are you saved has jesus saved you the greek word there is sozo and the greek word means simply to save or deliver or to rescue from whatever but including eternity in the lake of fire. And you establish, when in the Bible you get this word save, you establish what the saving or rescuing is from by the context. I mean, for instance, when the disciples were in the boat and there was the storm and they thought they were going to drown, they cried out to Jesus and said, Lord, save us. They weren't saying, Lord, save us from the penalty of our sins so we don't have to go to the lake of fire. He was saying, Lord, could you do something about this storm and make it safe, because at the moment it's dangerous. So, salvation in its widest sense simply means to be rescued from something. And the something that you're going to be rescued from, you have to to work that out from the context um, that it's used in in the Bible. Now, the context here all right, and we saw this last time and the time before, is that James is concerned in this letter not with justification, not with past salvation, i.e. having your sins forgiven so that you're going to heaven. He is concerned with sanctification. He is concerned with being saved from the power of sin in your life and being holy down here. So, James, at no point is he concerned with or addressing the issue of being saved from the penalty of sin. He's fully aware that these people are Christians. They're home joy on that one. That is not his concern. He is concerned purely with present salvation. He is concerned purely with them being delivered from the power of sin in their lives. So, what James is dealing with here is not asking, are you a Christian or a non-Christian? That's not the issue here. The issue here is, are you a faithful Christian who's being dealt with by God, or are you a faithless and hypocritical and worldly Christian who's making the profession that you're a disciple, but you aren't really? Now, that is the question here, alright. So then, What he's saying in effect is, he says, if you're the latter, if you're simply a Christian, you're a genuine Christian, but your claim to be an ongoing disciple Christian is mere words, okay? He says, if that's all you've got, if you've got faith that consists of words but no works, he says that's not genuine faith, that's not daily trusting the Lord and following Him, and you'll get nowhere. But if you've got genuine faith, i.e. that shows itself in works and obedience to God, then, because you're working at it where it counts, you can be sure that you're going to grow and mature in the Lord. Remember we saw last time, this is what Paul talked about in Philippians, as being working out your own salvation. Not just talking, but actually working it out. God's given us a new nature, so let's, in obedience to his commandments, allow that new nature to come out. Okay, so then, the question here, when he talks about, um, you know, that, that can that faith save him, what he's saying is, the question here is being saved from the power of sin in your life. Now, you might claim that you have that faith. You might claim, oh yes, I'm going on with the Lord, I trust Him, I'm a disciple. But, unless that is backed up by the obedience that that means to His Word, then if you think that that faith that is merely talk is going to get you delivered from the power of sin, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Because we must work out our own salvation. God's put it in, but He can't do everything. He can't work it out. We've got to walk in the good deeds that God has prepared for us. And so, therefore, he's saying, look, on this issue of being a disciple, don't answer by talking, answer by living. That's the point. And you can claim to have faith to be a disciple, but unless that's been worked out in your life in obedience to the Word of God, then, sorry, I for one don't believe you, all right. Let's read verse 15. And he quotes, for example, If a brother or sister is ill-clad, and in lack of daily food, and one of you says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what does it profit? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. You see, what he's saying is, if you get into a situation where you can meet a need, the law's leading you to meet a need, and you walk away from it, you do all the, oh, bless you, brother, bless you, brother. I'll pray for you, brother. I'll pray for you, brother. All right? Now, that's the yak of the yak. It's faith talk, and indeed, a a truly faithful believer would say that. But the faithful believer would also meet their need. Is he? And what he says, if you're one of these people who are just going to talk, and not do, then although you're talking faith, you haven't got it. And you're kidding yourself if you think you have. Because faith, ...is living in obedience to the Lord. So therefore, it's practical. It's down to earth. It's self-sacrificial. Go back again, yet again, to 1 John. Many parallels in these two letters. Find chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 John 3. And he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us... And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed or, and truth. And what James is doing, he's comparing worldly Christians who are merely word and speech with the true disciples who are deed and truth. Can you see the difference? And that is why he raises this question, can your faith save you if it has no works? He's saying, of course you're not going to be set free from the power of sin in your life if you haven't got works in your life. Because the works in your life are the proof that you're doing what is necessary in order for you to be set free from the power of sin. That's what he's saying. Right, let's go on to verse... uh, and, And then in verse 17, he says, So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. So he's saying, look, talk... All you like, but it's dead. There is no sign of movement. A dead body doesn't move. All right? Therefore, a Christian who talks but doesn't do, there is no movement of discipleship there. They're not moving in the Lord in any true way at all. Verse 18, he says, Right, but someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. Now, what he's got here is a very low-key brother, alright, who's been taken in. What we've got is is sort of like a Christian who looks around at other Christians and he sees them ministering the gifts of the Spirit leading people to the Lord left, right and centre. He doesn't do that, alright, so he concludes that he hasn't got any faith. He feeds the poor, he gives, he serves the Lord on a practical day to day. But he's concluded, they're the spiritual ones, I'm just the practical one, okay? So, therefore, what he's saying is, look, you people doing all the super spiritual stuff, you've got faith and I've got works. Now, what James is saying is, no, that actually isn't true. He says, you're the one who's got the faith, not them. If they are serving as well as doing all the gifts of the Spirit, then they've got faith as well. But if it's the case that they're merely doing the gifts of the Spirit and all the high-flying stuff, and not serving, but you're doing the serving even though you might not be doing the high-flying stuff, you're the one who's got true faith. That's what he's saying. This idea that there are Christians and their thing is the gifts of the Spirit and the spiritual stuff, and there's another breed of Christian who are merely the practical ones, it's a load of rubbish. There's only one type of Christian, the practical one. That's what James says, works. The faith has got to issue in works. So he says to this Christian with the inferiority complex, this Christian is saying, oh, I haven't got any faith, I, I don't do gifts of the Spirit, I, I just get on with me serving. What he's saying is, he's saying, look, hang on, that is faith. Don't say you haven't got faith, that is faith. You're sacrificially caring for the poor. You're living in repentance of the sins of the world, envy, bitterness, hatred, hatred, love of money, etc. He says that is the proof that you've got faith. Not gifts of the Spirit, not leading people to the Lord all over the place, not healing people, all that is great, we ought to be doing it, but that is not the evidence of the faith of a disciple. The evidence of the faith of a disciple is the works, the down-to-earth, practical serving verse 19 he goes on to say you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder do you want to be shown you foolish fellow that faith apart from works is barren close example here. he says look demons believe the truth alright now then spiritual Christians can spout and wax eloquent and prove verbally that they believe the truth. And people mistake that for faith. Remember, we're not calling into question whether they're Christians. We're calling into question, on what basis do you know you have discipleship faith now? Right? Now, the point is, the demons believe the truth. Alright? And they shudder. It's so real to them, It gives them the collywobbles. They know that Jesus is absolutely Lord. But, do they have faith? No, they don't. That's believing the truth. That's all. The demons don't live in submission to God. They wouldn't be demons, would they? So, what he's saying is, look, all this faith talk, don't mistake that in itself for faith. Because if that's how you're going to define faith, then the demons have faith. But of course the demons don't have faith, they're demons, not angels, you see? So he's saying, look, you believe the Bible, you think that's faith, do you? That that in itself is faith. Look, demons believe the Bible. And what he's saying here, that discipleship faith is not believing the Bible. Discipleship faith is living according to the Bible. Of course you believe it, or you wouldn't live by it. But it's the living according to the Bible. That is what true faith is. And it issues in practical service and practical personal holiness. And any Christian who's got all the gifts of the Spirit, high-flying, but is not doing the serving and is not growing in the practical, personal holiness, then they're kidding themselves if they think they've got discipleship faith. They haven't. They're just high-flying in the gifts of the Spirit or whatever. That is not discipleship. Because believe you me, you can fly high in the gifts of the Spirit within 30 seconds of becoming a Christian. But what does that say about your maturity? you see the problem? It's maturity the Lord wants. Character. Holiness. Then, verse 21, he goes on to quote, you know, talk about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by works. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, the Christians who believe that salvation can be lost would quote a verse like this, and saying, look, Abraham was justified by faith plus works. So therefore, if you don't do the works, you can lose your salvation. And here it talks about justification, being made righteous before God. But of course, what we've got to do is to, to, to bear in mind here that What James is talking about is not justification as in being set free from the power, uh, from the penalty of sin. He's not dealing with the issue, um, has, has the blood of Jesus cleansed you? Are you born again? Have your sins been wiped away? Are you judicially not guilty before God in heaven because you've received the sacrifice of Jesus? That's not his question. He's not concerned with your status before God in eternity is concerned with your relationship with God here and now. So therefore, are you right with God now? That's the question. Now then, Abraham was saved and declared judicially innocent before God when he believed the promise about going into the land. But the story about when Abraham was willing to offer Isaac up on the altar is not raising the question of whether or not he is saved from the lake of fire. It's raising the question, having been saved, can you not see that Abraham maintained discipleship? And this was proven because he was willing to sacrifice the most precious thing in his life when the Lord asked him to. And that's the issue here not being justified in the sense of being set free from the penalty of sin, but the question, am I right with God now? Am I in right relationship with God today? Because I'm being obedient to His Word. And very often His Word requires that I make sacrifices. So when he says in verse 24, you see that man is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's talking about but having been made right with God in eternity because you've received Jesus as your saviour, if you're going to remain right with God day by day in a relationship with him that is going to sanctify you and set you free from the power of sin, then it's got to be by the sacrifice of obedience to his word. And Abraham proved not that he was a believer, not that he was a convert. Abraham proved by being willing to sacrifice his son that he was a disciple and that's the burden of James not are you saved he's assuming his readers are his question is are you acting saved are you in right relationship with God through obedience at this moment in time and he quotes the example of Abraham to get the point over look Genuine faith, following the Lord daily, doesn't boil down to gifts of the Spirit and and all all the high-flying stuff. It boils down to being willing to sacrifice whatever God might want you to sacrifice at any one time. Then, in verse 25 and 26, he goes on and he says, "...in the same way was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way so he's there as Israel went into the promised land okay they had Jericho all right and uh, the spies went in and Rahab was a harlot but she believed in the Lord she as you know she knew the history of Israel and when the spies came in she, she sort of you know said I'll put you up at my place you'll be safe here and what she did she put her own line her own life on the line in order to serve this God whom she now believed in, the Lord God of Israel. So that what happened was that when Israel went in to attack the city, what Rahab had been told to do was to hang a scarlet thread out of the window of her house in the wall so that Israel knew, don't do anything to that room. And therefore, she was saved. She was delivered from, you know, that attack. And the point is that what he's saying is that Rachel, she demonstrated her faith because she was prepared to put her life on the line for this God who had just saved her from the penalty of sin in her life. And so, therefore, her faith issued in works. She was prepared to risk death in order to serve God. And so, that, this whole thing about Abraham, uh, this thing here about Rahab the harlot, that is what James is addressing. We've got a kind of a a very ordinary brother, hypothetically, you know, that he sort of pictures, and this brother is not a high-flyer, doesn't see much by the way of gifts of the Spirit or anything like that, but he's serving, and he's living in daily repentance of sin. And this hypothetical brother raises this question and, uh, you know, sort of like, he says, look, you have faith, I'm not a high flyer, but I've got works. And in answer to that, James says, no, 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 you brother with the inferiority complex. If you're serving and living in repentance of your sins, you're the one with faith, and these are the high flyers Whether they have true faith depends not on what they're doing, like gifts of the Spirit. It depends on whether they are also serving and living in repentance in the way that you are. If they are doing that and have the gifts of the Spirit as well, yes, then they have faith as truly as you do. But what James is saying, don't confuse faith with the gifts of the Spirit. Don't assume that outward, external appearances, even if it's the Lord blessing, don't assume that that gives the true story of the condition of that believer's heart. To find out whether a believer is truly a disciple, you look not at their external circumstances. You look at the way they live. Not whether they're ministering the gifts of the Spirit. Not whether God is doing this, that or the other for them externally, you look at the character of their lives. And so he quotes Abraham as the example. He says, look, the demons would be an example of the believers who talk faith. But he says, the demons, they're not following the Lord, they know the truth. He says, because faith is more than that. And he says, if you want to know what true faith is, true discipleship faith is, it's Abraham being prepared when God asked him to sacrifice his own son. That's what discipleship faith boils down to. Because the truth is that to serve each other, to meet needs, and to live in repentance of our sins, that is self-sacrificial. And the thought of Abraham being prepared to offer up his own son as a single act is a good symbol of what that self-sacrifice means for our entire lives down here. A daily giving up of whatever it is that is most precious to us, that might be standing in the way between us and God. I, when God says, this is what I want of you now, and our sinful nature recoils and says, not that. But we, as disciples, say, well, okay, it's going to hurt, but I'm going with the Lord. I'm going with the new nature. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give, I'm going to live in repentance of my sins, whatever it boils down to. But that is what discipleship faith, this faith that keeps us right with God day by day, not in eternity, we're saved by the blood of Jesus, that's not an issue, that is past salvation. But this is asking the question in regards to present salvation. Are you a disciple? Are you right with God? Are you justified? Are you in faith towards God at the moment? Well, the answer to that is, are you serving? Are you sacrificing? Are you living in repentance? And Abraham and Rahab the harlot show us the way. And then in verse 26, he ends his argument. The final nail in the coffin is this. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works, is dead. So, what he's saying, I mean, here we've got a definition of death. When the Spirit leaves the body, someone is said to be dead. Alright? It's as simple as that. And here he's saying, that if you've got one of these believers, high-flying in the gifts of the Spirit, but without this other thing that we've been talking about, then what James is saying, look, they're spiritually as dead, in the here and now, as a body, the spirit has left it, is dead as well. Now, the thing to note is that in comparing dead faith in a Christian that's not serving with a body, the point is that the body was once there and alive in order for it to have died. Do you see that? If you've got a body that has died because the spirit has left it, that body was alive, but now it's dead the life was there. And here, he's talking about Christians, alright, who have got faith but no works, and he says it's dead. But the point is, they did have genuine faith once. Because when they became Christians, that was in obedience to the Word of God. So he's saying, look, these Christians who are carnal, they started off with genuine faith that was obeying the Lord. But he says, now, they've become carnal. Now they're purely into the spiritual stuff and they're not into the nitty-gritty serving stuff. So then, the point is, their saving faith was there. They're saved. They're going to be with the Lord. But in the here and now, their faith is dead because it hasn't got any works. And as surely as when the Spirit leaves the body, you've got a corpse. If you've got a Christian No matter how much they're doing, spiritual gifts-wise, talking-wise, or whatever, if they haven't the fruit of the Spirit developing in their lives, if there's not that sacrificial serving, if there's not that daily repentance of sin and dying to self, then their faith is quite simply dead. And that's the fact of it. And that is what James is writing about. Because he's urging people to be disciples. So then, all the things in this letter, the things we've seen so far, the things we're going to be moving on to see, if they're not being addressed in our lives, worked out, struggled with, repented of, I don't mean overcome so that there's no more problem, but then James doesn't expect that. But I'm saying that all these things that James deals with, if they're not being addressed outworked, struggled with and repented of in our lives, then our faith is dead. And that's the truth of it. We're talkers. We're talkers. That's all we are. Unless this thing of God dealing with us is happening, it is merely talk. All right? No matter what we might claim for ourselves, no matter what we might say of ourselves, if this isn't true of us, then we are not disciples, we are not in the here, of na- here and now maintaining a right relationship with God we can pray, we can worship, we can sing, we can dance to the Lord we can evangelize, we can prophesy, we can speak in tongues, we can heal the sick we can raise the dead, we can have revelation from the Lord an understanding of the Bible that is gobsmacking But unless the practical, nitty-gritty service is there, then the truth of it is, it's all a deathly sham. It is sheer hypocrisy. It is faith without works that is dead. And of course the point is, it's no faith at all. Because faith equals works. In exactly the same way that if you love God, you will therefore love your neighbour as yourself. It's also true that if you have faith in the Lord now, Not faith that you're going to heaven, but faith that the Lord is going to make you a disciple and deal with you and set you free from the power of sin. If you have that faith now, it will be working itself out in the way we've been talking about. But if it's not, then the faith doesn't exist. It's a sham. It's mere talk. Okay. So then, what have we got so far from James, That the whole angle that he's coming from? He's saying, don't just talk about faith and discipleship. Don't just make all the right noises that all the books tell you to make. Live it. That is the only way to be a disciple, is to live out the commandments in the Word of God. Don't talk, do. But the great problem is, and we saw last week, our hearts deceive us. And we have this really amazing ability to assume that what we talk is the way we actually are. And it's not actually true. Because we can talk one thing and live another. And James is giving out the warnings against this. He's saying, look, you're saved, but you've got to act saved. And if you're not, then all this talk about, I'm a disciple, I'm following the Lord, I have the faith that is keeping me in right relationship with God day by day. He's saying, no, that is just a sham. It's, it's not real faith at all, you're living a complete pretense. And you are, in fact, a carnal Christian who simply wants to be thought of as a spiritual one. Or you are a worldly Christian who wants to be thought of as a disciple. And, of course, this letter, all that he's writing is the way that we look at ourselves and ask the question, OK, which am I? And whatever I am, how can I address it? How can I get things absolutely right? Now, next week, we, we, we move on to what you might call, in terms of James Burden, the biggie. The real biggie. Or, rather, the little Because his biggest burden is one of the smallest parts of our body. Because next week he he turns on what the real problem actually is most of the time. And we're going to be looking at what the Bible says about the mouth and the tongue. So that's why I say it's a little, because the tongue is very small. Although it's true that often we have extremely big mouths. And that's true of all of us, isn't it? But the tongue is very little and yet it is often the biggest problem that we've got. And bearing in mind that what he's saying, so far, is it's easy to talk, but I'm not interested in you talking saved. I've got to know, I've got to ask you, are you acting saved? And because we do so much talking saved, apart from acting saved, that the issue of the tongue has got to be dealt with. So, um, I leave you with this thought. Come back, if you dare, next week. I'll leave it there.